0: The 14th Amendment to the Constitution, ratified in 1868, says that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And in the mid-20th century, some of the justices on the Supreme Court began arguing that we should interpret due process as incorporating the Bill of Rights. So when we read that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, we can really take that as a shorthand that no state shall deprive any person of one of the rights listed in the Bill of Rights. Linguistically, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. It would probably have made more sense to say that the privileges or immunities of citizenship include the fundamental rights protected in the Bill of Rights, but that option was foreclosed by the narrow reading of the Privileges or Immunities Clause in the Slaughterhouse Cases in 1873. It's an example of path dependency in constitutional law. Even though some prominent scholars think Congress really did intend to protect fundamental rights from state infringement through the Privileges or Immunities Clause, been a losing argument in actual litigation since Slaughterhouse. The argument that's won the day is selective incorporation, the idea that we must go one by one through the Bill of Rights and ask whether the particular right in question is deeply rooted in our history and traditions, whether it's fundamental to the American scheme of justice, as the court worded it in Duncan v. Louisiana in 1968. This is exactly what we saw in the case about Chicago's effective handgun ban in McDonald v. City of Chicago. The question was whether the Second Amendment limited the power of the states to ban or regulate handguns, and the court said it did. And while some on the court, noticeably Justice Thomas, were ready to revisit Slaughterhouse and breathe new life into the Privileges or Immunities Clause, the court's majority took the doctrinal path of least resistance, they applied the Second Amendment to the state of Illinois, and by extension the city of Chicago, through the Fourteenth Amendment's Due Process Clause. And so here we are. We've settled on selective incorporation as the legal doctrine that effectively applies the Bill of Rights to the states and reverses the understanding of the relationship between the Bill of Rights and the states that we found in Barron versus Baltimore in 1833. But to really understand the Supreme Court's approach to constitutional rights, we have to put one more legal doctrine on the table, and that's substantive due process. Like incorporation, it doesn't really make a ton of sense on a first reading of the text, John Hart Ely famously said that the phrase substantive due process was a contradiction in terms, sort of like green pastel redness. And I think what he had in mind here was this distinction between process on the one hand and substance on the other. Here's an example of process. The 14th Amendment says that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Read a different way, the clause is saying that the state may deprive you of your life, liberty, or property so long as due process is followed. The clause, therefore, requires certain procedural norms or safeguards. No unreasonable searches or seizures. No taking private property without just compensation. No denying someone access to counsel or the right to have a jury trial. But once those things are satisfied, once the procedures have been followed, then the state may take your life, liberty, or property. You can be fined, put in prison, even executed after due process has been satisfied. Substantive due process, on the other hand, isn't about ordinary legal procedures. It's about whether a particular deprivation of life, liberty, or property by the government is justified. It doesn't simply ask whether you've had a lawyer in a jury trial got to confront your accusers, but instead asks whether there are good reasons for the government to deprive you of your life, liberty, or property in the first place and in this way by that policy. As just one fairly uncontroversial example, take the case of Meyer versus Nebraska from 1923. During World War I, there was a lot of anti-German sentiment in the United States. The state of Nebraska had passed a law making it a crime to teach the German language at either public or private schools prior to the ninth grade. A guy named Robert Meyer was then arrested, charged with a crime, and fined for teaching a fourth grader at a private Lutheran elementary school how to read the Bible in German. Did Nebraska violate Meyer's constitutional rights? The Supreme Court held that it had. Question, why? The answer was that Nebraska didn't have a good reason to deprive the parents of their right to direct the education of their child or the right of the teacher to practice his vocation. Since the law was not justified because the state didn't have good reasons for it, the court held that it failed to satisfy due process. It was an unjust deprivation of liberty and property. But notice... That goes beyond procedural norms and strikes at the substance of the law, and it requires us to ask about justice, about right and wrong, reasonable and unreasonable. The kind of claim about justice that we see in Meyer versus Nebraska is a kind of claim American judges have made for a long time, that some actions by the government are unjustified because they're wrong or unreasonable or unjust. The rights at stake aren't always rights that are specifically listed in the Bill of Rights, so they're not rights that have been incorporated, but the court has nonetheless held that they're protected by the Constitution. We could include here under this general umbrella cases about the liberty to contract, the right to pursue a lawful vocation, the right to educate your children, the right to marry, the right to travel, the right to privacy, and a host of other rights related to sexuality and reproduction that the court has affirmed in the 20th and now 21st centuries. This kind of inquiry... Asking whether a government policy depriving someone of their life, liberty, or property is justified or reasonable requires that we ask deeper questions about life, liberty, and property. What do those words mean? What vision of human flourishing do they entail? What do they tell us about the structure of our government, particularly the structure of that government after the ratification of the 14th Amendment? These are big questions, and we can only scratch the surface. Let me do that by focusing on the vision of economic and property rights in the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and then setting up for us the discussion next episode of the rise and fall of economic substantive due process. You'll remember the 1866 Civil Rights Act was passed just after the Civil War and the abolition of slavery in the 13th Amendment. The question Congress was wrestling with was what legal protections were necessary to allow those who had been enslaved to live free. The positive vision of liberty underlying this act was not merely the absence of physical restraint or the absence of forced labor. It was a vision in which individuals own their own labor. They're free to enter into contracts and to have those contracts enforced in court, and they're free to own their own property. And these things, liberty and property, were bound up together in what it meant to be free. And even though the Supreme Court in the Slaughterhouse Cases gave a pretty narrow reading of the privileges or immunities of national citizenship, some members of the Supreme Court, including the dissenters in Slaughterhouse, did pretty early on start interpreting the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment to protect economic rights and interests. Consider here the case of Munn v. Illinois in 1876. The issue is a state law fixing grain storage prices. Munn alleged that the maximum price put on what he could charge for grain storage was an unreasonable interference with his liberty and property, and was therefore a violation of the 14th Amendment. A majority of the Supreme Court didn't buy the argument. States can regulate property, particularly with a commodity that affects the public, the state might have good reasons to regulate prices in a certain way. But in dissent, Justice Stephen Field laid out an argument for what we're here calling substantive due process. And so I want to leave you with this reading of the somewhat lengthy dissent by Justice Field. And I want you to keep this in your mind as we turn in our next episode to Lochner v. New York as the high-water mark of economic substantive due process jurisprudence, and then we look at the final repudiation and turning away from economic substantive due process in West Coast Hotel v. Parrish in 1937. This is what Justice Field wrote in dissent. The provision has been supposed to secure to every individual— the essential conditions, for the pursuit of happiness, and for that reason has not been heretofore and should never be construed in any narrow or restricted sense. No state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, says the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. By the term life, as here used, something more is meant than mere animal existence. The inhibition against its deprivation extends to all those limbs and faculties by which life is enjoyed. The provision equally prohibits the mutilation of the body by the amputation of an arm or leg, or the putting out of an eye, or the destruction of any other organ of the body through which the soul communicates with the outer world. The deprivation not only of life, but of whatever God has given to everyone with life, for its growth and enjoyment is prohibited by the provision in question, if its efficacy be not fritted away by judicial decision. By the term liberty, something more is meant than mere freedom from physical restraint or the bounds of a prison. It means freedom to go where one may choose, and to act in such a manner not inconsistent with the equal rights of others as his judgment may dictate for the promotion of his happiness, that is, to pursue such callings and avocations as may be most suitable to develop his capacities and give to them their highest enjoyment. The same liberal construction which is required for the protection of life and liberty in all particulars, in which life and liberty are of any value should be applied to the protection of private property. If the legislature of a state, under pretense of providing for the public good or for any other reason, can determine, against the consent of the owner, the uses to which private property shall be devoted or the prices which the owner shall receive for its uses, it can deprive him of the property as completely as by a special act for its confiscation or destruction. The legislation in question is nothing less than a bold assertion of absolute power by the state to control at its discretion the property and business of the citizen, and fix the compensation he shall receive. The will of the legislature is made the condition upon which the owner shall receive the fruits of his property and the just reward of his labor, industry, and enterprise. But I deny the power of any legislature under our government to fix the price which one shall receive for this property of any kind. If the power can be exercised as to one article, it may as to all articles." And the prices of everything from a calico gown to a city mansion may be the subject of legislative direction. Field then leaves us with this argument that the government does not wield arbitrary power over life, liberty, and property, that it must offer reasons for why it would deprive a person of life, liberty, or property in any particular instance. And if such a deprivation is unreasonable, arbitrary, lacking justification, therefore unjust or wrongful, then it doesn't satisfy due process. And with Fields' dissenting opinion in mind and this capacious vision of liberty under the 14th Amendment, we'll turn in our next episode to the famous or infamous 1905 case of Joseph Lochner versus New York.